This is hell. Live from the United States, where the law is far too often the crime, this is hell. If you want to increase the likelihood that law can commit a crime and then not be held accountable or responsible for that crime, have the police employ robot police dogs. Unsurprisingly, a lot of people are very unhappy about the very idea of robot police dogs. Even more unsurprising, the people who are the least happy about the concept are marginalized people, people of color, and those living in, let's say, less than privileged communities. You know the people who the police always target first when employing any new police technology. Sure, it makes sense to deploy robot dogs when rescuing people following earthquakes and other disasters, as well as dismantling bombs, but doing the job of police? And here's something that makes it even more frightening. The public doesn't necessarily know if their local cops have robot police dogs. Can you imagine not knowing your local police have robot police dogs and all of a sudden you're confronted by a four-legged robot barking commands at you? I don't know about you, but I'd freak out. In a few minutes, we will be discussing, yes, robot police dogs with science and tech journalist and columnist Rod McCollum, who posted the article, Robot Police Dogs Are On Patrol. But who's holding the leash? Numerous cities have acquired dog-like robots for policing. Researchers say the lack of transparency is very worrying. And that article is posted at undark.org. Undark is a non-profit editorially independent digital magazine exploring the intersection of science and society. It is published with generous funding from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation through its Knight Science Found, uh, Journalism Fellowship Program at MIT, Massachusetts Institute, Institution of Technology, Institute of Technology. Rod is a Chicago-based science journalist whose work has been published by Undark. Scientific American, Nature, The Atlantic, and MIT Technology Review, among other publications. He writes on the intersections of science, technology, biomedicine, and society. Follow Rod on Twitter at Rod McCullum. Find out more about Rod at rodmccullum.contently.com. Producing is Dan Kugler. Dan, how was your weekend other than the miserable rain that you just came over here in? <laughs> the weekend was good. Mel the Barcat downstairs was uh, not pleased with the rain. <laughs> For the first time in like months, ever since I've been working on this show, went in the back door, uh, unlocked it to get in. Mel was just sitting there. Meow, 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 <laughs> meow, <laughs> like an alarm. <laughs> well, at least one of the alarms works around here. So, uh, yeah, he should be in his house. Why isn't he in his house? I don't know. He's got his house up here. Right? I don't know what's going on there. My weekend was fine, but I am really looking forward to this upcoming weekend. And here's why. First, my wisdom tooth extraction has been delayed until after my birthday next week. Second, we're taking next week off, not only because it's my birthday and producer Will Ippens as well, but because I'm told the wisdom tooth extraction will take a few days to recoup recuperate enough to actually talk, which is kind of important when you host a radio show that airs in three countries as well as a live stream 
and podcast. And finally, and most importantly, this coming Saturday, September 30th, is the second annual 50th anniversary party of the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now. Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue, as well as the closing of This Is Art our annual art show curated by the amazing artist Lisa Barcy that opens every year during our show anniversary party that takes place on the second to last weekend of July every year. This year we celebrated 27 years on air. What makes this year's second annual 50th anniversary party of Carrie's Lounge special is a lot of people are coming in from out of town to celebrate, including former producer Chris Bigasinski. Longtime listeners may remember Dr. Biggs, an MD who produced from the late 90s to the mid-aughts and later contributed as a correspondent on all things medical. So sure, last weekend it was fine, but next weekend will likely be epic. Dan, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what could possibly be giving you hope? What could possibly be giving you hope? We will share your question from hell answers as uh, posted at Patreon. Coming up after our talk with Rod on Robot Police Dogs. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Dan has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is not a Bloody Mary, but a Bloody Mary burger. MASH.com ran an article by writer Brianna Sandin on Sunday with the headline, Bloody Mary-inspired burgers are the brunch hangover cure we need. Sandin writes, Bloody Mary burgers incorporate all the rich and hearty flavors of a Bloody Mary without adding insult to injury with the addition of vodka. While it may be missing the one ingredient in a Bloody Mary that could actually bring you some instant relief, it's chock full of healthy ingredients that can help your body slowly but surely recover after a night of overindulging. The protein in the beef works to increase blood sugar levels, which tend to decrease when we drink alcohol, resulting in headaches and fatigue. What's more, the tomatoes and tomato paste work to enhance liver function, helping you metabolize alcohol more quickly so you can get over that hangover faster. Satin adds, if you think a touch of vodka might help, you get over the hump. However, a condiment consisting of mayo, lemon juice, Bloody Mary mix, Worcester sauce, hot sauce, and just a tablespoon of vodka can take your Bloody Mary burger to new heights. If you're more apt to slather ketchup on your burger, try mixing in some horseradish for a boost of that Bloody Mary flavor. That makes this week's hangover cure not a Bloody Mary, but a Bloody Mary burger. Which actually sounds pretty good. It does. It does, sounds actually sounds very like good. I want a, one delivered to the station. <laughs> right now, exactly. <laughs> so, that make again, that makes this week's hangover cure not a Bloody Mary, but a Bloody Mary burger. Coming up, robot police dogs. Seriously, need I say any more? Don, uh, Don, Dan, shares some of your answers to your to our most recent question from hell. We will tell you what happened during our most recent bonus uh, Patreon podcast, which is available at patreon.com slash thisishell. 
We'll tell you what's happening later this week on the show. And as it is Monday, historian Dr. Seb Vuper has a new past inside the present. When Seb, uh, Seb uh, provides the historical context from the past so we can have a better understanding of our present. Uh, Dan, uh, what is Seb talking about this week? Seb is talking about a time when everybody was kung fu fighting. In today's episode, he talks about the Boxer Rebellion. <laughs> Oh, my God, I didn't know where that was going. Uh, so staring into the abyss so you don't have to, this is hell. And what kind of dystopian abyss are we looking at when the police are deploying not only drones, but all sorts of new surveillance robots, include, including four-legged robots that have the potential to become weaponized and a further expansion of the militarization of the cops? Here to help us understand what the hell is going on with cops and robots science and tech journalist and columnist Rod McCullum posted the article at undark.org Robot Police Dogs Are On Patrol But Who's Holding the Leash? Welcome to This Is Hell, Rod. Morning, thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me on the show. Thank you so much for being on the show. This is absolutely fascinating writing as well as your other writing that people can find by going to undark.org. You'll see the article by Rod, Robot Police Dogs Are On Patrol, But Who's Holding the Leash? Just click on his name, and you'll see all of his previous writing at Undark. You can follow Rod on Twitter at Rod McCollum, and again, you can find out more about him at rodmccollum.contently.com. You start by writing in late May, after months of, of debate, the Los Angeles City Council approved the donation of a four-legged dog-like robot to the nation's third largest police department. The approval was granted at a public meeting that was interrupted at times by shouting, applause, banners such as no robot dogs, and the ejection of disruptive protesters, according to the Los Angeles Times. Now, according to another article, a, a CBS Los Angeles report at the time, city council passed the resolution approving of the purchase of the $278,000 robotic dog. They uh, reported that the quadruped unmanned ground vehicle was offered as a donation to the Los Angeles Police Department by the Los Angeles Police Foundation. The foundation is a not-for-profit that provides funds for the LAPD. Los Angeles Councilwoman had uh, Enri uh, sorry, Unes, uh, Hernandez had uh, uh, previously said she had grave concerns about accepting the do donation, explaining, we've seen these robot dogs crop up in other police departments around the country, including New York and San Francisco, where the community is similarly fighting uh, back against bringing this kind of depersonalized military-style technology to municipal uh, police forces. So wherever it is, Rod, how popular are robot police dogs to the citizens they will be policing? Are these popular, democratically made decisions? Well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me to the show, and I really appreciate the intro. And also, if I can say, as a Chicagoan, as a person who wasn't necessarily born in Chicago, but lives, lives in Chicago on and off much of my adult life, I appreciate being on your show because it's a local institution. So thank you so much. And an early uh, happy birthday to you as well. <laughs> thank you very much, Rod. I appreciate it. I'll expect flowers later today. Of course, absolutely. They'll be, <laughs> they'll be on the way. They'll be on the way. They'll be on the way. So a um, couple things. So um, you made a very good point about transparency. The robot dogs, as you noted, their correct or rather their technical name, um, a robot is simply known as an unground, uh, sorry, as an unmanned ground vehicle, a UGV. Whereas a drone, which is a robot that flies in the air, is, is technically known as a 
unmanned area vehicle, an UAV. That's, you know, that's just technical talk right there. So what happened in Los Angeles, and I think you kind of hinted to this, was the Los Angeles City Council did not purchase the, uh, the uh, dog-like robot, the quadruped, which means it has four legs by Boston Dynamics, which is called Spot. We can go into that in just a little bit. But what happened was they received a donation by the Los Angeles Police Foundation. And some cities have these. I think Chicago might have a similar one. There's one in New York. And these are usually um, nonprofits that are set up by funders of um, civic entities or nonprofit entities or policing or law enforcement entities. And what they do and what happened in Los Angeles is the Los Angeles Police Foundation um, gave a donation of the robot manufactured and developed by Boston Dynamics. It cost about $275,000 They gave that as an in-time donation to the L.A. Police Department. And what they've done before is they also, um, if I'm not mistaken, they were the first to donate um, body-worn police cameras. And also, I believe they donated um, uh, drones as well. I could be wrong about that. So if you see, it's sort of a backdoor way that some police departments get extra hardware. Of course, once they have the hardware, they have to keep it up, right? They have to spend for maintenance. So why not just buy another one? So that's what's been happening. Now, um, you mentioned about transparency. Um, I can go into that, but did you have more questions? Uh, well, the only thing I was going to follow up on that was, and I think sure. that you already touched on that, is uh, are these donations then a way to get around defunding right. the campaigns? Exactly, exactly. And you, and you made a very good point about that earlier when you were talking about transparency. What they have in the state of California is a, um, there's a much more uh, transparency in the state of California around um, police and uh, law enforcement hardware. There is a, a law there. It's just AB 481, Assembly Bill 481. And what that does in California requires every police department that wants military-grade hardware and these could be anything from robots to armored tank carriers. Remember around um, the Black Lives Matter protests and, and remember around the Ferguson um, protests, how we would see many poli police departments had all this military equipment, which often was surplus equipment bought from the Defense Department. So California has this law now that when um, police departments want to purchase any sort of military-grade hardware, they have to ask their funding body, be it a a, a city council or a county commissioner body or something like that, and they have to put in a usage plan. So California is somewhat advanced. That. We don't have that here in Illinois, and I don't believe we have that in Chicago. So you mentioned earlier about how many of these, um, how many of these um, police robots are around. We really don't know. We don't know. Boston Dynamics, which is a Massachusetts-based company that develops this um, quadruped robot, and there's another company as well, Ghost Robots in Philadelphia. There's a similar one, mostly from military, though. They will not release hard numbers. They have noted that they have shipped at least a thousand units by the beginning of this year, but they won't say exactly how many are for police. Why not? I don't understand. Why wouldn't they? As a company, I would right. want to promote the fact that we have produced 1,262 robot dogs for the for a police department and uh. look at their great record that they have and their effectiveness. This is the reason why you should have these. So why would they not want to release this? Why would they want to keep these kinds of numbers secret? I'm not sure. Um, you might. Um, I, I've studied. Um, I've, I've reported and researched on um, on policing and law enforcement, and their technologies, 
And um, there's different things that come up, and I'm sure you report on it as well. I think one thing is law enforcement generally just likes to keep their cards close to the vest, because of the vest about, you know, what products they have, what capacity they have, and so do many of their contractors. Now, you mentioned something about, about um, before about um, capacity, and then you just talking about transparency. There's two uh, main companies that are the big players in terms of um, quadruped robots, the four-legged ro robots that are dog-like. Boston Dynamics is the major one, and that's the one who I sort of profile for the most part. It's based in Massachusetts. It's actually a spinoff of, of MIT and went public years and years ago, or rather it went public some years ago. And um, there's another company and that's based in Philadelphia called Ghost Robotics. Now, Ghost Robotics, which is based in Philadelphia, their main contract, their main, um, their main um, commercial base customers are mostly military and home homeland security so it's the defense department or it could be the japanese ministry of defense or it could be you know singapore ministry of defense something like that um, because they have a four-legged robot that has more military applications to it and we can talk about that later if you'd like now boston robotics um, what they have decided to do with their robot which is very very popular it's called spot it's about 70 pounds and it's about maybe two and a half feet high it's about the size of a golden retriever they have pledged not to weaponize that product and they have pledged also to deactivate any units that are weaponized i'm sure you want to talk about weaponization later so we can hold that but i just wanted to put a pin in there about that so i think what's happening is the industry is changing um boston dynamics also was bought by um hyundai you know the automaker so um, I think there's also just in terms of what their strategy is going to be going going forward. So I just think that in general, many um, police and law enforcement and military suppliers just don't like to um, they don't like to publicize these sorts of things. If you're you know if you're a different police department and you want to know, I'm sure they can give you videos and testimonials, and I'm sure they can walk you through and introduce you whoever you need to. But they don't like the public to know these things for the most part. And we have had people who have been critical of mil the militarization of the police on the show. Right. So from what you're saying, then, the police are more more than likely far more militarized than we know that they are. You were mentioning earlier that L.A. Right. City Council's move to accept the donation will require quarterly reports on the deployment right. and use of the robot, that AB481, right. that requires right. police departments to seek approval and outline use policies before acquiring military-grade uh, hardware. Was right. that state—is that state law, do you know— is it new? Is that in response to protests against police violence, specifically racialized police violence? I mean, prior I to believe, the, yes. Go ahead. Go, no, please continue. But I was just yes, going to say, yes, uh, prior to the protests against the killing of uh, police killing of George okay. Floyd in 2020, right. would such a purchase mm -hmm. have been rubber stamped by municipalities? Right. right. That's a great question. That's a great question. Um, I am told by different um, sources and different um, researchers who follow law enforcement, who follow law enforcement technology, who follow um, uh, ro um, police robotics and drones and, 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 and things of that nature, that absolutely this was a response. The AB 481 was very likely a response to the, um, to the uh, George Floyd situation. Of course, California often is a it's a bellwether state, you know. And years ago, people used to laugh about those crazy Californians. And I, you know, just self-disclosure, I was born in Los Angeles and was raised there and here in Chicago. So I consider myself Chicagoan, but I'm a Los Angeles person at heart. Um, as you know, LA, California has led the nation on many things, you know, such as seatbelts. You know, I believe they're the first state to require seatbelts, maybe the second. Um, no smoking in restaurants, you know, 
um, bicycle helmets, motorcycle helmets, things like this. So possibly, maybe this could be something else that you know that other states will adopt. Because oftentimes California will introduce a law, and other states will follow it. But as far as I know, here in Illinois, here in Chicago, we do not have such a law. So the Chicago Police Department does not have to announce, you know, that they want to buy this sort of technology and they do not have to come up with a user plan. I don't know how many robots Chicago Police Department has. They don't. They don't um, put that on their website. You write of Los Angeles requiring these police departments to seek approval and outline use policies before acquiring military-grade hardware. Quote, apparently this is not the case in other cities, as you were just saying. Uh, and you uh, point out that uh, plans this spring to deploy two Boston Dynamics robots paid for with asset forfeiture funds, as well as a new surveillance robot known as the K-5. A number of law enforcement ah. agencies around the country are acquiring such robots with little transparency, critics say. Is there any indication, any evidence that this kind of militarization of the police further incentivizes law enforcement uh, asset forfeiture? And if it does, what's, ah. what's wrong with incentivizing police to fund themselves <laughs> through assets? Ah, very good question. Um, when you're talking about the two Boston Dynamics robots and the K-5, which is manufactured by a company called Nightscope, which is based in California, I believe in Silicon Valley, that's the NYPD on the other coast. You know? And it's sort of interesting how the NYPD came out announcing um, that they had two ro- two Boston Dynamics robots, which are called Spot. I don't like to call it Spot because that sort of um, morphizes it, you know, sort of makes it, you know, sort of playful sort of dog. It's not a dog, it's a robot, but the product is called Spot. And the night scope, which looks like, remember the dialects with Doctor Who? Yeah, and I saw the picture in the article. Yeah, that like is yeah. creepy as hell. <laughs> right, right. It's, it's this big sort of egg-shaped, um, egg-shaped robot that uh, I can't. I think it's four feet or so. I could be wrong in terms of how high it is. And it sort of rolls. It rolls on four wheels or three wheels, and it's sort of like a dialect. But they look funny. I mean, they look cute. And oftentimes, these um, with the K five in particular. I'm glad you brought that up because I think you sort of keyed in on something very important here. It's actually a rolling surveillance surveillance um, operation. Um, it can intercept wireless communications within 300 feet. Um, it has GPS. It has sonar. Um, it has facial recognition technology. But I believe um, every uh, I, I, sorry. I believe it has facial recognition technology. It also has ALPR, automatic license plate recognition, which I'm sure you might have reported on before. But that's the technology that allows. Um, um, devices usually used by law enforcement to scan license plates very quickly, you know, and learn who the driver is, you know. So it has all these capacities, but you won't know it. You just think it looks like, you know, this sort of cute dialect-looking creature, you know. I'm, I'm sorry, not creature, but uh, device. Now, when you were talking about asset for, forfeiture and why, why is this not a good thing, you also um, bring up something that's very, very interesting. The reason why I think some researchers um, are opposed to these units, and there's also a global Stop the Killer Robots campaign, is because we don't have any data on its effectiveness, or there's very little data. You know, Since most police departments and law enforcement don't have to reveal how many units they have or how it's used, you know, independent researchers can't say, are they effective? So we really don't know at this point. That is also amazing to me, mm-hmm. that they would employ something or deploy something that it, they don't even know if 
it is effective whatsoever. That that's just mm-hmm. it just doesn't make sense to me. I would I would think that they would you know want to tell people how uh, these mm. uh, these things work and if they are really effective. And when it comes to these K five like robots, these Daleks, mm-hmm. you uh, you also mm-hmm. quote Nicole Turner Lee, a sociologist who researches the intersections of technology, race, and policy at the Brookings Institution, telling you mm-hmm. it's crucial to establish guardrails when Im- implementing new surveillance technologies because there is a tendency to mission creep mission creep mission, mission creep, creep means yeah. the addition of new tasks or activities to a project so that the original purpose or idea begins to be lost it can be both dangerous and expensive how likely is it when new police and surveillance technologies are deployed that there is mission creep and is there any way for us to even know uh, another very good question well i know you've been you've been following progressive causes for years and you've also been following um, law enforcement um, overreaches for many years. And oftentimes, um, what I've seen just in terms of my research and what I've seen just in terms of reporting research, but oftentimes law enforcement uses emerging technologies and they will use emerging technologies just in terms of surveillance. And, and if you remember back in the 1950s and 1960s, the FBI was doing what? With the civil rights movement, wiretapping, right? And more recent in more recent years, they've used helicopters. But what was interesting was you mentioned earlier about the George Floyd protests. I'm not sure. Did you know that? Remember when those protests were happening? I believe that was in 2020, all around the country. Did you um, hear what was going on? Was that the U.S. Marshal Service had drones over some of the protests um, in Washington, and some local police departments did, and over their over their. Um, Protests as well. I don't know about Chicago, so I can't say that happened. But ostensibly, the drones were providing air support, you know. But a lot of activists believe that the drones were intercepting communications. You know? um, they that they, they may have been using some sort of um, technology to identify um, people um, just in terms of their cell phones or from facial recognition or things like that. So oftentimes, emerging technologies are used by law enforcement, and we don't know about it until years later or months later, how they're used. In the article I was quoting earlier from CBS uh, Los Angeles, the story from Mm -hmm. May, they report that New York City has recently added robot dogs to its police force, despite concerns from some residents that the machines could be problematic, especially in poor communities that have experienced aggressive policing. A robot dog was recently used in New York City to go, again, this is back in May, to go inside Mm -hmm. a collapsed parking garage with New York City Mayor Eric Adams praising the machine. They then quote Mayor Adams stating, just one week ago, I was being criticized by all the folks in the bleachers saying, well, where are you getting that dog? Do you see why I uh, got that dog? To save lives. A rescue robot. Mm -hmm. Now that makes sense. Yes. They've used them sense. for years within disaster areas. This is right. not a rescue robot. It is a robot right. police dog. At this point, is the robot programmed to do more than rescue people trapped during disa- during a disaster? Right. Very, very, very. That, that's something that's really interesting. I'm glad you picked up on that. So there's a couple things here. Um, I do know what you're talking about, but from my, my understanding, is that the dog-like robot, the quadruped robot that was a Boston Dynamics robot that did go into the collapsed garage in, in lower Manhattan, but that actually was by the New York Fire Department, the FDNY. You know? So that's their own robot there. And it does make perfect sense to me to send um, a robot into something like a, you know, like a garage collapse or a building collapse or where there's been a gas leak or something like that. But even at that point, what happened was 
um, the uh, the FDNY said, you know, we sent in this rope, you know, we sent in, um, you know, this spot, you know, the four-legged robot from Boston Dynamics. And it, it, and it verified there were no more survivors because I believe that a number of people were trapped or possibly even killed in that um, in that parking collapse. So don't quote me on that. So the question becomes, how much actually did the robot do? You know, we have to take their word for it that it, you know, that it confirmed that there were no more casualties. But already, do you see what I'm saying? Had other things proved that, you know? Had there been um, had there been fire department personnel? Was there were there video cameras? So it's really difficult to um, to gauge how effective these are. You know. So then so then of course if they were saying if the FDNY or as you mentioned Mayor Adams said that the spot you know that the um, Boston Dynamics robot was effective, then we'd have to ask well, what were their criteria? How effective was it? I mean, has the you know had the parking garage parking garage been cleared you know three or four hours earlier? You know, and this was just a final confirmation. Do you see what I'm saying? So it, it you know, the criterion are, can be very vague. You know, so we we really don't know any things. You also report that the lack of statistics is concerning, said Alondra Nelson, the Harold F. Linder Professor of Social Science at the Institute for Advanced Study, and until recently, the acting director of the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy for the Biden administration. Mm -hmm. She uh, states that we don't have any data on the technology safety effectiveness failure rate in human interactions, adding fundamentally, we just don't have basic notice and explanation on how these uh, things are being used. So is the problem the government not insisting upon accountability or oversight rules mm. or even studies into the effectiveness of the robot police dogs? Or is it a more uh, more cultural problem that local governments, as we've been talking about for the last year when we first, uh, when we first discussed this with historian Austin McCoy, is, is it a cultural problem that local governments have an unassailable, unassailable relationship with police? Ah, I think you touched on several things that probably, probably it's probably all of the above, and then other things as well. I think number one, there are cultural issues. I believe that our society has sort of been programmed to believe that the government and law enforcement are going to try to do things that are in our best interest, and sometimes they will, but then other times I believe we have to ask questions as well. You know, I also think that some things sometimes people forget the random, the average person probably doesn't know about what the extent of the government's technology or policing powers are. You and I don't know. I mean, for instance, um, do you think the average person has heard of the National Security Agency? Probably not, you know, but it's several times the size of the Central Intelligence Agency, which most people have heard of. You know, most people have heard of the CIA, and they think that the CIA is the big player in terms of intelligence, but no, it's actually the National Security Agency. So things like that, the government likes to keep secret. I think what's happening is there is a patchwork of laws. You know, we have AB 41 in California, but next door in Nevada and Oregon, they won't have that sort of law. You know, we have, for instance, and and here in Illinois, and here, I think you've done something on this before. I could be wrong, but we have the biometric privacy law. You know, and Illinois has the strongest biometric privacy law in the country. But other countries, I'm sorry, other states don't have that, you know. So, um, for instance, here, if facial recognition is used without your consent, um, you can opt out of it, you know. Or the police department, for instance, would have to notify everybody or even Facebook or Instagram if they're going to use, you know, your, if they're going to use, um, if they're going to use facial recognition to identify you in Illinois, they have to let you know. So there's all these, you know, it's just a patchwork of different laws. If there's one more thing I can say, and I'm, 
don't want to take too much time. Um, Alondra Nelson, a former White House advisor on, on, um, for the Office of Science and Technology Policy, she brought something up that was very interesting. She noted that in Honolulu during the pandemic, the Honolulu Police Department used the Boston Dynamics robot spot to take the temperatures of unhoused people living in a tent camp. Now, I think at this point in the pandemic, she said, we knew enough that you know a regular person could take their temperatures, but it was dehumanizing as well. So she thinks that that was an overreach of the technology because the technology wasn't necessary. So when you're using it for things that aren't necessary, that's where, as you said, mission creep comes in. Oh, we're using it for this. Why not use it for this as well? Why not use it for this too? Do you think that is going to be or is intended to be one of the uh, police robots in general? Uh, mm-hmm. Actual missions is to... You know, we we have an increasingly uh, horrible unhoused problem here in the United States. Right. We are having right. an issue with migrants. As you know, you live here in Chicago. Right. We're having an issue mm-hmm. with refugees who are coming to this city. Do you think that this uptick in robot surveillance from the police is about handling problems like, or the way that they view them as problems, uh, handle, handling issues like right. those of migrants, refugees, and the unhoused? Right. Um, I don't know. Um, I will say that you could be onto something. It's really interesting that you mentioned about the migrant problem, because there is another company that manufactures um, four-legged dog-like robots. That company is called Ghost Robotics. They're based in, they're based in Philadelphia. Their consumers, their customers are mostly military and Homeland Security. And the Department of Homeland Security and the Customs Bureau, I believe it's called CBP, Customs Bureau, oh, Customs and Border Protection, they have a contract with ghost robotics and ghost robotics is actually um, um sorry the ghost um the ghost robotics their um vision 60 um, which is the name of their four-legged robot is already um on patrol in some basis and the expectation is that it will be deployed along the southern border so there is an there is an expectation that these four-legged robots which which i'm not sure i don't think we got into but the they you know they can walk stairs, they can navigate stairs, um, they can you know move around, walk around boulders. And the Ghost Robotics, um, the Vision Sixty, their product, their device, is even amphibious, so it can swim and it can walk through shallow water. So the expectation is that these um, four-legged, you know, these dog-like robots will be deployed along the border, possibly looking for migrants. They also are outfitted with night vision and thermal imaging. And you meant you use the word dehumanization. Do you mm-hmm. think that these technologies would be allowed if they were first introduced into areas that were not marginalized, were not areas that uh, are having difficulties with the bottom mm-hmm. line in their communities? Do you think that anybody would allow this kind of technology if they first, let's say, mm-hmm. unleashed them in Wilmette? No. Right, exactly. Very good question. Very good question. Well, you mentioned before in, in New York um, how New York has now two of the robot dogs. Interestingly enough, they actually, the first robot dog, the first dog-like robot from Boston Dynamics, their first spot, they actually acquired during the pandemic, I believe it was in 2020. And the first two missions that the um, dog-like robot, you know, the, um, I hate calling it spot, you know, but the, um, the four-legged robot was sent on were to a standoff, I believe, in a housing project in another situation. Um, I think it was a domestic violence situation in the Bronx, or I could have them reversed, you know. But the bottom line is the first two missions that were sent on were not to the Upper East Side, you know. Um, they were sent to the Bronx, and they were sent to a housing project. So 
I think that question sort of answers itself. We know that these sort of technologies, um, especially with um, intrusive technologies or technologies that imply a show of force are often sent to um, regions or communities where the people have less agency and they're marginalized. And um, those would be black, you know, African-American communities, Puerto Rican communities, things like that. And the further dehumanization no, no. of those communities mm-hmm. as well. We are speaking with science and tech journalist and columnist Rod McCollum, who posted the Undark article, Robot Police Dogs Are On Patrol, But Who's Holding the Leash? You can follow Rod on Twitter at Rod McCollum and find out more about Rod at rodmccollum.contently.com. You quote the sociologist Nicole Turner-Lee again saying, there is a propensity to improve these technologies for greater accuracy when it comes to uh, identifying uh, people. And in the criminal justice system, greater accuracy can almost always amount to higher levels of incarceration. But it, it, isn't that the point to catch criminals and criminal activities? Does higher levels of incarceration necessarily mean a greater likelihood that the innocent will be jailed? Or do robot police dogs decrease the likelihood of unjust incarceration? Ah, a very, very good question here. Um, I think with any technology, um, of course, that's what research shows, that you have to have safeguards up, especially when it comes to law enforcement. I mean, we like facial recognition, but already there have been a number of cases where people have been arrested because of mistakes in facial recognition. And I'm not sure, are you aware of this, but facial recognition has been proven to be less reliable on darker faces and also on female faces, because most of the training sets that the algorithms are trained on are run on male faces and on on, on, um, white and Asian faces, which are much lighter, you know. The dark. So there's going to be um, problems there, and there already have been. I believe there's a case here in Chicago. There's a case, I believe, and in, uh, I could be wrong, but there's a case, I believe, in New York. Or, so there have been several cases, and there's actually one just in the news recently. So just because we have more robots and just because we have more technology and just because um, these technologies, like remember in Chicago, the red light traffic camps, you know? And how that was a big deal several years ago when it first came out, because some people were saying, hey, you know, it took the photo of my car and it, it took the photo of my license plate and the light, light was still green. So it doesn't necessarily mean all the kinks haven't worked out. You know? So, yeah, they might be able to um, capture more people or lead to more arrests, but that doesn't necessarily mean these are the rest of people who necessarily might have committed these crimes. And you point out that Boston Dynamics, which was recently acquired, as you were saying earlier, by the South Korean-based automotive company Hyundai, uh, says it has a strict policy against the unauthorized weaponization of its robotic products mm-hmm. and will deactivate any units that have been armed. You mentioned a public relations statement from, on behalf of uh, Boston Dynamics reiterating mm-hmm. that policy in a statement emailed to Undark, where they state that Spot... Again, this is the four-legged robot, uh, helps Mm -hmm. keep people out of harm's way and aids first responders in assessing dangerous situations. The statement also says that, additionally, we want to point out that any attempted weaponization of Boston Dynamics robots is strictly prohibited, as clearly outlined in our terms and conditions, our ethical principles, as well as in an open letter against weaponization, which was spearheaded by Boston Dynamics and co-signed by five other leading robotics companies. So, Mm -hmm. we know the power of trade secrets, and we understand how more and more manufacturers are making products more difficult to repair, if not illegal to do so. How safe should we feel when Boston Dynamics, when Hyundai puts such protections on their robot police dogs? Is this something that, well, we should be uh, at least, we should have some solace in this? 
Uh, very, very good question. Um, I don't necessarily have the answer to that, and um, you know, I, I, I wish I, I wish I could, um, I wish I did have that capacity, you know, to look into the future. I mean, <laughs> you know, I can, you know, I'm, I'm sure I would doing, I would do very well for myself and so many others. But I think it's also important to acknowledge something that you just hit on. And I realized that that I haven't mentioned this earlier. You mentioned about how um, Boston Dynamics and I believe four or five other manufacturers of these um, dog-like robots signed a pledge against weaponization. Now, Ghost Robotics did not sign that pledge, you know, but what's important to understand is when you think of the four-legged robot, think of an iPhone. It's a platform, and what you can do with your iPhone or your Android phone, I'm sorry, just let me just say smartphone, rather, or tablet, you can load various applications on it, you know. So, the, 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 uh, the unit itself might have a base price of let's say seventy five thousand or, or you know, hundred thousand, but you can add more features to it and then it becomes more expensive. But it's software, so you always can add more things to it. Now, some companies, and I believe Boston Dynamics is used more in private companies. I could be wrong, like warehouses, or I'm sure you can understand how it could be, you know, how it could be very useful in an Amazon warehouse or something like that. You know, just tracking inventory or things like that. But there are some companies that have add-on features to their robots, their Boston Dynamics robots, um, to um, monitor for hazardous gases, you know, or to, uh, or to monitor for gas leaks, you know, or things like that. So you can make, I mean, so the products are customizable, you know, but Boston Dynamics and several other manufacturers do not want those customization features to include weapon to include weapons, but they can include um, facial recognition or other or other technologies. I believe you know at least some of these um, some of these uh, dog-like robots can. I don't know is that the case with um, Boston Dynamics, but remember the um, the robots come with cameras, and that's how they navigate through the world. You know by using um, but but. You know, they have an algorithm that helps them navigate, you know, and they use their cameras, you know, to see the world around them. So you can modify your camera, you know, just like you have on your phone to do different things. So that's the same concept here. So because uh, there's always the question when it comes to policing of impunity, what happens mm. if the police violate either the company's terms oh. of use or the prohibition set by the city? Would individual police officers, would there be any kind of individual or uh, police uh, structural accountability. Ah, that's a very good question. I don't know, and I like that phrase you use, structural accountability, um, because that's actually what we're seeing here. And there's some some uh, some jurisdictions, the state of California, for instance, wants more accountability. You know, um, they have a law, their AB forty one, that they're requiring all their local police departments or county police departments or, you know, different cities to city police departments if they want military hardware, such as if they want a robot or if they want an armored vehicle or things like that, they're going to have to come up with a youth plan for it. And as you said, the, the Los Angeles Police Department is going to have to report quarterly how many times it was used. But I don't know, is there an effectiveness, you know, is there a fakeness capacity there? And the other issue, of course, is in a state like Illinois, we just don't know. We don't know how many um, how many robots Chicago Police Department has. I believe the Cook County Sheriff has at least one robot, but I don't know what type. I don't believe there is a state or a county law that mandates their um, transparency, that mandates them to announce what they have, or, of course, to mandate um, effectiveness numbers. And you and I know statistics can be, can be manipulated in all sorts of different ways. Yep. Especially when it comes to crime. 
especially when it comes to crime. You're absolutely right about that. You you write of SWAT teams, which are often the most aggressive Ah. and militarized of police. Special weapons and tactical teams Mm -hmm. have also tasked the uh, Boston Dynamics robots to confront barricaded suspects in cities such as Houston and St. Petersburg, Mm -hmm. Florida. Police Mm -hmm. officials in metropolitan Detroit have also been uh, considering using and acquiring dog-like robots. So do you think that there is, what is the potential that SWAT teams could become more aggressive in this use, in their use of robots? Right, right. So um, I, I like how you brought this up because I can see conceivably how a SWAT team could use a, uh, could use a, um, a four-legged robot, you know, to, um, to monitor a perimeter, you know, in a barricade situation. I believe that they will use that in St. Pete and somewhere else recently. And that simply means sending the, um, sending the robot, you know, down the block to be able to look into um, a home or a car, you know, from a safe distance and see, you know, is there a suspect there and how many weapons he or she may have. That's something that, you know, would be dangerous, you know, for a for a human to do, you know, for a human police officer to do. So I can see the relevance there, you know, and I can certainly see why SWAT teams would be interested, you know, in this device. But on the other hand, in Dallas, there was several years ago, that was the first instance of a person who was killed with a robot. I'm not sure, do you remember that story? But it was a man um, who um, had, um, had sniped at several police officers and, um, the Boston, the I'm sorry, not Boston. This was in Dallas, and Dallas Police Department wanted to um, find a way to disable him, and they actually sent a robot in there. I believe it was a bot. It was not this robot. You know, it was not the Boston Dynamics robot or a similar four-legged um, robot. I believe it was a bomb disposal type you know, robot, and they actually sent a bomb. You know, on that on that robot. So the bomb detonated, and the uh, the suspect was killed. So there is a um, there's a growing awareness around the world. I believe there's a, the campaign is called Stop Killer Robots. And you actually mentioned that in the very beginning of the show. So there is awareness that these sorts of robots, which now might look fun, you know, that they could be used for um, other purposes as well. So you also point out that developing navigational uh, algorithms for quadruped robots in an urban environment can be challenging, said Jia Pan, an associate professor on uh, computer science at the University of Hong Kong, who focuses on AI, sensors, autonomous robots. Two of the most important considerations, he said in a Zoom interview from Hong Kong, are safety and enabling the robot to move efficiently through crowds. Pan tells you that these are actually two related problems. If you want to guarantee safety, you can make the robot move very slowly. Whenever right. it meets some people or an obstacle, it can stop. But this is very right. inefficient. At this point, at the stage, as far as you know, uh, are robots either inefficient or unsafe? Do police have to decide which they would rather be? Uh, um, that's a good question. Um, I can't say overall. You know, I'm not a computer scientist, you know, and um, I'm not an engineer. I just know um, just some of the... Um, just some of the the data and some of the specs, you know, and some of the devices I'm reporting on. But it does seem that the robots, the technology is becoming more like just like with with many other things, the technology is fastly um, is fastly um, improving. Um, I think some years ago they were considered to be clunky, um, but now they're fairly. Um, some of them um, are very nimble. The Boston Dynamics robot um, can navigate stairs and go upstairs, and it can also open a door with an attachment on it. And it's a, it's a, it's a device that looks sort of like a vice grip, and you attach it to the 
uh, Boston Dynamics robot, and you also would have to load more software to it, and it's it able to open a door, not unlike how we've seen sometimes dogs and cats able to open doors because they work together, you know, so that can happen. One more thing I want to mention is you mentioned Hong Kong. Uh, Dr. Pan is working on um, a four-legged robot, him and his team, that was going to, um, be, in, that was going to be deployed and they hoped it would be deployed in Hong Kong during the pandemic to remind people to keep social distancing. That actually happened in Shanghai, in Beijing, in Shanghai, I'm sorry, in uh, Shanghai and Beijing, um, I believe, I'm sorry, in Singapore, in Shanghai and Beijing. In Singapore, um, the Singapore, um, I'm not sure which, 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 um, which law enforcement, which agency was, but one of their local um, law enforcement agencies, I believe, or custom, or just a Homeland Defense Agency, used Boston Dynamics robot to remind people in public settings about social distance. So the um, robot was patrolled in a park and on a street, I believe, and it would it would um, announce a message, you know, from its loudspeaker to keep whatever four feet apart or six feet apart. When it would note it, when it would be able to tell by its lidar, you know, it was light detection and ranging, you know, and that's how it navigates that people weren't standing too close to each other. So it's a slippery slope. You mentioned a resident of the Studio City neighborhood of Los Angeles was among those who opposed the plan to accept the, a robot donation at the city council meeting back in May. And you mm-hmm. then quote the resident testifying, I think it's very interesting that the robo dogs are called Spot, which has right. always been a nice little pet, and the fact that you're voting on them today and they're uh, going to go into neighborhoods where a lot of surveillance already is. Everything always gets tested in the same neighborhood. But if surveillance has Mm -hmm. not solved whatever crime problem these neighborhoods have, that would suggest that surveillance is not necessarily the solution and maybe not as effective as hoped in fighting crime. What explains the police doubling down and increasing a Mm -hmm. surveillance strategy that seemingly has failed in crime uh, prevention? Why not consider something other than increasing surveillance? Ah, so you're asking the police departments to give up their budget and to give up their, uh, <laughs> and to give up a lot of leverage. They have. You can't do that. I mean, it's, it's great you're asking. You're asking all the right questions because you've followed these sort of issues for many years in terms of um, the abuses of the um, of the police state, you know, of the policing system. And what actually happens, of course, as you know, is you give a police department or you give any you know government agency a budget, they're going to do what they can to spend that budget, right? And if you give them technology, they're going to want to do more and more things. But what is interesting is, um, as she pointed out, that um, it's not, I'm sorry, as you just pointed out, but it's not often stopping crime. For instance, here in Chicago, where I live, you and I know that the city has a crime problem. You know, it also has a problem with gun violence. Now we know that there are CCTV on many corners and in many intersections, and also the Chicago Police Department has gun detection technology. You know, and they have these speakers, these acoustic speakers that are able to listen for gunshots, and that can triangulate where there's a gunshot and send an arrest. You know, send a, you know send a, um, an alert. You know, send a message to a nearby police officer or a nearby police station. That hasn't necessarily made the city any safer. You know, so the city, of course, is claiming that gunfire or gun violence, for instance, they'll claim gun violence is down in um, uh, Logan Square, for instance. Well, it might be, but as you and I know, Logan Square has also been gentrified. You know, so it's been gentrified in many, many years. So it's become more expensive. So when you when um, people with um, higher income move into neighborhoods, usually there's less crime. You know, or they might say that. Um, Inglewood, you know, um, you know, ever since we put up um, 
you know, all these gun detection systems in Inglewood, you know, which is a neighborhood in the southwest side, which is, you know, seeing unfortunately share of problems, you know, that there's um, less gun violence in Inglewood, where there might or there might not be. But as you and I know, and you know from reporting on this, that there's just simply less people in Inglewood, you know. And Inglewood, which used to be a very bustling neighborhood, has lost a substantial, you know, fraction of its population and losing more and more of its population with more and more vacant homes there, you know, being lost to foreclosure. So there's fewer people also in Inglewood. And just because the, you know, the technology is there doesn't mean that it actually made, you know, time, uh, made these things happen. There is a correlation, but not necessarily a causation. Is surveillance the privatization of ah. policing while not challenging structures that may be failing? It allows for private concerns to profit from policing without challenging uh, the institution itself? Now, now you're asking questions from critical analysis now, <laughs> <laughs> which I love. But, you know, you're asking the sort of questions that I really appreciate because usually these aren't the sort of questions that um, journalists often ask, or they often um, they often don't. As you know, m most of the time you see reporting on surveillance technologies that much of the coverage from the press is going to be funding, and it's all gee whiz over technology. But these sort of questions should be, as you're right. Um, I've heard um, different versions of this, but it seems that, remember in the 50s, um, President Eisenhower warned of the military-industrial complex, right? So now some, some, some research researchers are warning about a, a, a system which I've never heard of before until this article was called surveillance capitalism. You know? And surveillance capitalism would be the contractors that do things like make p police body-worn cameras or that they make CCTV or they make things like robots or they make you know, things like you know foliar robots or they make things like gun detection technology systems. And there's all these different um, um, technology um, technology and devices, and much, most of them are used, or many of them are used to surveil, you know, or to police or to incarcerate people. So that's the term surveillance technology and, and surveillance capitalism. And unfortunately, surveillance capitalism is leveraged the most in poor communities. For instance, I'm living, I'm right now in Humboldt Park, and I'm on the seventh floor of a building. I'm looking across, and what I do see every few blocks are I see those tall, um, those tall, uh, they look like um, towers, you know, um, when I see the gun detection, um, and I see the gun detection um, devices on um, the acoustic speakers on those, and I also see, um, and sometimes they're on top of the street lights, I also see um, the CCTVs as well. So I'm just looking across, you know, and I can't say that, um, I mean, I don't know what the, you know, what the statistics are, but I don't know have they actually improved anything, or I don't know have they actually made crime safer over here, or they lower the crime rate. I just know that there's more of them here. Yeah. So a lot of people would just say the issue would be oversight. All we need is oversight. Right. You write that while the Los Angeles Police Department will be required to issue quarterly reports on the Boston Dynamics robots usage, that policy could go further, said a criminal analogist uh, that you quote. Uh, police right. departments and local jurisdictions should be subject to third-party oversight and regular evaluations. Right. He tells you that it should almost be on a monthly basis to make sure too much time doesn't go by between implementation and auto-correcting for any errors that will be inevitable. So how his, historically, how accepting are the police and their uni unions of third-party oversight? Right. Very, very, very good question. Um, that question, um, that comment was posed by Howard Henderson, who is a um, 
criminologist based at Texas Southern University in Houston. Um, really sharp mind there. And he asked a lot of these questions, especially around technology and marginalized communities. Um, unfortunately, the police often, uh, police and law enforcement often do not like oversight from third parties. Technically, um, historically, they've been very opposed to it. Um, I remember back, and I remember, I remember just reading about um, the Church Commission in the 1970s, you know, which was investigating abuses by the CIA, you know, and I believe this might have been one of the one of the first times that the Central Intelligence Agency was called in front of the Senate to answer for themselves. And they didn't like that. And they still don't like now talking about what they're doing. Um, I believe there probably is you know, some some good reason there because they don't want to, much like they, law enforcement in general or um, police departments or surveillance um, operators within the government don't like to say everything they're doing because they don't want sorry, everyone to know, but they also don't want oversight. They don't want third party, they don't want, want they don't like to be told what they can do and what they can't do. And I think um, probably goes down to that phrase of power corrupts and absolute power absolutely corrupts. So we don't know here in Chicago how much surveillance technology is, exists. We know that there's a lot of it, you know, and the city of Chicago is promoting, you know, that for instance, gun violence is down and it is, you know, but because but we also know that you know it got it went very high in 2016 2017 and it dipped for a couple of years and then what happened was the pandemic right and then gun violence spiked in cities like Chicago, New York, um, Baltimore and Philadelphia you know so now it's gone down a little bit um, but it's also gone down nationally because you know, what's happening is more people are back to work you know and usually when the economy is better crime goes down so just because we have more surveillance now and we have more cameras you know on every corner or every other corner doesn't necessarily mean that's why crime is down maybe crime might be down in a certain area because it's been gentrified or maybe there's a new jobs program you know or you know Maybe, you know, the neighborhood's being cleared for something else, you know, some sort of a renewal project, or I won't say a renewal, but, you know, but, but some sort of, you know, th there's been some sort of infrastructure problem issue. So we really don't know. And also, Los Angeles is required, is required now, Los Angeles Police Department, to mention how many times the robot has been used, but they're not required to publish effectiveness stats. And that's something that criminologists and some researchers and sociologists, you know, and people who are studying these things want. They want to know how effective, you know, what what was the unit sent out to do and how effective was it? Yeah. One last question for you, Rod. We sure. are speaking sure, with sure, sure. science and tech journalist and columnist Rod McCollum. Posted the article, Robot Police Dogs Are on Patrol, But Who's Holding the Leash, which you can find at undark.org. Follow Rod on mm -hmm. Twitter at Rod McCollum. Find out more about him at rodmccollum.contently.com. Dot com. Rod, for mm -hmm. all of our guests, our final question, we, all, we call it the question from hell. It's the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, mm -hmm. or our audience yeah. is going to hate your response. You write that scientists, researchers, and policymakers have also raised questions around the potential for racial or ethnic bias. Law enforcement right. agencies have historically over-surveilled African-American, yeah. Latino, and indigenous communities with emerging technologies such as wiretaps and drones, critics mm -hmm. say, as you pointed out mm -hmm. earlier. But sure. Rod, how can a robot be racist? Ah, very, very, very good question. And to answer very quickly, the robot itself can't be racist, but it will be programmed as artificial intelligence algorithms will be programmed by humans who have their own biases. And of course, the robots will be operated and they can be operated by remote control. And that will have, um, that will be um, at the discretion and at the whim of the people who are operating. And remember, the drones were sent over um, the Black Lives Matter protests. I don't know where they sent over 
um, the um, January. Um, I, I, I don't know what other circumstances has happened in recent months, in recent years, but I do know it happened over the over the uh, Black Lives Matters protests. The city, the city, different city police departments and the federal government sent drones you know, to um, surveil the uh, the crowds. Well, Rod, I really appreciate you being on the show. I'm going to bug you in the future to be back on. I've really so. I've really enjoyed Please this so. conversation, yeah. and the work yeah, you're doing interview. is really fantastic. So thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you. You're a great interview. Thank you so much, and take care, and happy birthday. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. If our conversation with Rod McCollum on the frightening future of robot cops scared the hell out of you like it did me, Show your appreciation for completely commercial-free This Is Hell, providing over 27 years of content that you cannot find anywhere else, giving airtime to stories like the one we just discussed with Rod that you won't hear anywhere else, and providing new content to you absolutely free every week since 1996, including nearly 10 years of free shows that you can find right now at thisishell.com. Show your appreciation for all of that. And as Rod was pointing out... (laughs) I do ask questions. We do ask questions on this show that you will never hear in establishment media. Show show your support for all of that by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Or you can just show your support by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. On our most recent bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell, uh, which went live, what was that, on Thursday, September 21st. I actually, I, I don't know how this happened. I actually have some hope, which feels really weird. Yes, after talking to guests who are far smarter than I am for 27-plus years on a show called This Is Hell, somehow I've found hope. Well, it's not as much hope as it is a case of anti-doomerism, that edgy hipster pessimism that does nothing but cause the believer to complain and nothing more here on the show we've done everything we can to raise awareness of all the hellish news that the media refuses to report sure the first step is in improving our hellish world is recognizing that yes this is hell but stopping there and not considering how we can individually and collectively learn grow and transform well that's a dead end the kind of dead end that corporations and the politicians that they fund steer us toward for their own benefit following up on that hope that's really more of a rant against doomerism. We played an interview from our July 7, from July 27th, oh, sorry, July 17th, 2004 with award-winning author Rebecca Solnit, who was on at that time to discuss her then just published book Hope in the Dark: Untold History's Wild Possibilities. So, if you want to wallow in hope, Check out our Patreon podcast from last Thursday. But the only way you can hear all that hope, including an interview with Rebecca Solnit, as well as get a discount code, a special secret code word to get a discount on all of our stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support. And to ask a question from hell of me, your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, and to stay on top of everything going on behind the scenes with exclusive content only for Patreon subscribers is by, you guessed it, subscribing at patreon.com slash thisishell. Dan, what is this week's question from Hell, and how are our listeners responding so far? Perhaps not coincidentally, our question from Hell is, what could possibly be giving you hope? And uh, on Patreon, we've got Essential, 
uh, saying cruelty. I, if I learned anything from Schindler's List, hope is derived from cruelty. <laughs> oh, that's harsh. <laughs> Andrew M says eventually entropy will prevail. <laughs> okay. I like that. That's one. a good one. Old Grouch is not in a grouchy mood this time. Uh, hope <laughs> is an emotion. Hope is an attitude. Hope is a mental outlook. Hope is not in the status quo. Hope is in change being possible. Hope is an opioid for the discontented. Hope is a fairy tale for the young. Hope is the steel in the drive for freedom and equality. Hope is what you make of it. Wow. Hat tipped uh, old grouch. That was very beautiful. And Mike the Giga Grouch. <laughs> A lot of grouches. Yeah. Uh, give, it's the demographic we target the most. Right. Really. And uh, true to his name, Mike the Giga Grouch says, giving up hope. <laughs> okay. So he's hopeful to give up yeah, hope. I gotcha. Uh, Jefferson Backwards, <laughs> I finally got it, <laughs> says uh, that someday. I'll remember the secret place I put that hundred dollars. <laughs> I can't be sure I didn't spend it already, but there's still hope it's in here in one of those books or something. Yeah, I was moving out of a place I lived over on Argyle on uh, near Clark Street. And as I was moving out, I was like, oh, let me just take one back look at the whole apartment. And I saw in a hanger rod in a closet, which was hollow. I looked inside and I'm like, why is why can't I see through this hanger rod? And so I blew through it and like three hundred dollars in a bag of weed came out. Awesome. <laughs> That's pretty intense. I almost you left sh- that for the landlord. Maybe it generates itself. You shouldn't have moved out. You <laughs> exactly. be set for life. <laughs> yeah. Any more? Uh, that's it. Okay, so the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, they'll win their choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell uh, at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can put it, put it at the Discord, at Patreon, uh, the Welcome to the Hellhole Facebook page, which is growing more and more every week. We have nearly 800 people in that Facebook group now, so if you would like to be a member of that group, just get in contact with me via Facebook, and we'll get you in as well. Uh, so, yeah, you can do all that. Now, Dr. Sebastian Vober, a historian himself, Sorry, I should have given you a cue. Uh, And now Dr. Sebastian Vopper, a historian himself who gives us the historical context of the past so we can have a better understanding of the present in his segment, The Past Inside the Present. Take it away, Sebastian. The past inside the present. By the way, Sebastian, I love that opening. Very well produced. Thank you, thank you. Uh, I hope I'm un- I hope I am unmuted. Anyway, <clears throat> so today we are returning to China during its century of humiliation. I have some ground to cover, so uh, bite your mouth guard. I'm going in dry. Uh, that's some highly inappropriate humor for you to warm things up. <clears throat> anyway, mouth guard, bite it. We're talking about the Boxer Rebellion today. We talked about the first opium war and the Taiping Rebellion in the past two weeks. 
uh, we did not get to mention the Second Opium War yet, which was basically just another bout of imperial humiliation for the Chinese at the hand of uh, at the hands of the British. This time with hen- help from the French and from the Russians for good measure. Uh, the Second Opium War happened during the Taiping Rebellion, broke out in 1856, and ended in 1860, because the Qing emperors just couldn't catch a break at that time. The war ended with the Chinese having to cede more parts of what would become the mainland sectors of Hong Kong to the Brits and Outer Manchuria to the Russian Empire. What makes the Second Opium War important when talking about the Boxer Rebellion is that the treaties that the foreigners forced upon the Chinese further forced the country open. Especially because the treaties allowed foreign powers to operate their own legations, so basically embassies, in Beijing, uh, the capital of the Qing Empire. Also, foreign traders could now traverse all of China and were no longer limited to treaty ports. At the end of the war, the position of the Qing rulers was then further diminished, and the Taiping Rebellion still went on for another four years before their capital of Nanjing fell in 1864, so it was really not a great time for the Qing dynasty. But things are getting worse. Um, Anyway, before we can uh, now just fast forward to the turn of the century, we need to talk about a special lady. Because the second half of the 19th century in China was dominated by the rule of Empress Dowager Cixi. Cixi is a fascinating figure whose rule over China is a fascinating tale in and of itself. She was the mother of the Tongji Emperor, but she had been just a noble consort. She had not been empress when the emperor's father, the Xianfeng Emperor, died in 1861. The heir to the Mandate of Heaven was five years old when his father died, and now his mother, noble consort Yi, rose to become the Empress Dowager Cixi. And in her position, Cixi was impressively cunning, ruthless, and supposedly not beyond just straight-up poisoning anyone whose general smell she disagreed with. She outmaneuvered many opposing nobles and palace bureaucrats to secure her place at the heart of the Middle Realm. And she broke with Qing tradition that said no women or princes were allowed to assume the mantle of regent. From 1861 on, Empress Dowager Cixi ruled China from behind the curtain. She proved a formidable ruler, even if many of the Manchus at the heart of the Qing administration disliked her seating a growing number of Han Chinese in important positions. Remember, the Qing were part of an ethnic minority. The Manchu Qing elites had become too corrupt and too complacent over the centuries, and that corruption and complacency had moved the country into the dismal position it was in at this time. But not to be too generous towards her, Sishi herself contributed to the corruption using much-needed state funds to build palaces and acquire riches for herself. And also her son proved to be kind of a dud as emperor, despite Sishi's best efforts. When he was 18 years old, he then also just died of smallpox, leaving China without an heir. Eventually, another young four-year-old, uh, a nephew of Cixi's, was chosen as the successor and given the regnal name of the Guangxi Emperor. When this new emperor became then old enough to rule at age 16, members of the courts, uh, members of the 
Qing court objected to his ascension. They preferred Cixi hold on to the rule just a little longer. And when the Guangxu emperor then finally ascended to rulership in 1889, fires and natural disasters that uh, plagued the country suddenly made many officials worry that these were signs the ruler lacked the mandate of heaven, which is this whole concept uh, of legitimism, legitimizing the ruler of the Chinese emperors since time immemorial. Since there have been Chinese emperors, they've claimed the mandate of heaven as why they can rule. Um, that's that kind of like needs its own episode. Uh, anyway, and Cixi then officially retired because, well, a new emperor was on the throne; her services were no longer needed. But, but. Well, this wouldn't be the Empress Dowager Cixi if she just really retired, you know. Uh, she kept consulting the young emperor in basically all major political decisions going forward, unofficially basically resuming her rule from behind the curtain. And things didn't go great for the Guangxu Emperor either. In 1894, the first Sino-Japanese War, well, at the time, the Sino-Japanese War, broke out, and China was again thoroughly humiliated. In reaction, the emperor tried to implement a far-reaching reform program that would have transformed uh, the country into a constitutional monarchy. But he had failed to rally support for these reforms before announcing them, so he quickly faced harsh resistance from across, well, all of the court um, and all of nobles, and was essentially informally exiled and excised from power. Empress Dowager Cixi then returned from retirement officially and took the reins of the Middle Kingdom once again. And as you, dear listener, will have by now come to understand, uh, China at the turn of the century was really in deep, 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 deep trouble. Bandits were plaguing the land, foreign Christian miss missionaries crisscrossed the countryside, foreign powers forced their way into the land, and in this environment, a movement of young men arose that called itself the Righteous and Harmonious Fists. These were young men, often teenagers, who practiced spiritually-minded martial arts. Um, kind of your archetypical, you know, martial arts movie protagonists, I guess, in some, in some form. Or antagonists, depending on where you land. And since they took the righteous part of their moniker seriously, they opened some major cans of whoop-ass on uh, the roaming bandits. And then the bandits started either converting or pretending to convert to Catholicism and sought refuge with the missionaries. And with the lines blurred thusly, the whoop-ass can opening now also began to increasingly involve foreign missionaries. And before long, just about any foreigner who was stupid enough to show their long foreign noses where the fists could punch or stab or shoot them. Other similar such societies arose that all bore pretty awesome names. The Big Sword Society, the Plum Flower Boxers, the Red Boxing Club. Well, you get where this is going. Out of the disparate and violent opposition by localized small groups to foreigners grew a wave of opposition to foreign influence that swept across China. And at the same time, in 1897, uh, the great powers of Europe opened up a scramble for spheres of influence in China. The German Empire, Britain, France, and Russia especially successfully pressured the Qing court into ceding parts of the country as quasi-colonies to them. 
The anti-foreigner movement was not taking this lying down, though, and before long, the various local societies began to coalesce into a more formal movement. In 1889, they adopted the moniker the Militia United in Righteousness. The Qing themselves were initially uncertain what to make of this movement, because the movement challenged Qing authority, sometimes openly and with violent force. But they also... and. But they also threatened to plunge the country into an open war with the foreign great powers. But they also opposed the foreign occupants who had been humiliating China for 70 years at this point. In 1900, this then pretty much came to pass, commonly referred to as the boxers because they performed, uh, participated in and practiced, quote unquote, Chinese boxing. Um, That's kind of the foreign uh, Europeans, the gave them that name. Uh, The war then became known as the Boxer Rebellion. And it might be one of the chapters of Chinese history that Americans actually learn about in school because the United States played an active role in this war. Empress Dowager Cixi had initially thrown her support behind the Boxers. After all, their battle cry was, support the Qing, destroy the foreigners. So what was not to like? Foreign troops had since entered China and tried defending foreign missions and installations against the roving boxers. American Marines were positioned in Beijing's foreign legations quarter, trying to keep the Americans there safe. And then on June 11, 1900, the German legation forces captured a young boxer who had entered the foreign quarter and executed him on the spot, which turned out to be a bad idea because the boxer army outside the city was not quite a big fan of that. And in response, thousands of militiamen flooded into Beijing, burning Christian churches, um, killing foreigners, and burning churches sometimes with people still inside because they didn't care. In reaction, more foreign troops began to move towards the capital. The Qing, meanwhile, decided to put their full support behind the boxer cause. Opposing the boxers would further diminish the already dismal standing of the Qing rulers. Suppressing the rebellion would be extremely difficult and extremely unpopular. And then the the great powers of Europe and the United States formed the Eight Powers Alliance. Um, That was the United States, India, France, Italy, Great Britain, Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Japan. And they sent an ultimatum to the Empress Dowager, China was to surrender all control over its military and finances or face open war. Well, the the Dowager Empress was saying no to this. She remained defiant. The Qing then began laying siege to the foreign legations with support of the boxers. The following month saw a lot of fighting between the boxers and the Qing troops on one side and the eight powers forces on the other. The Qing performed poorly as did the boxers. Their weapons and tactics still had nothing to match the modern arms and strategies of the foreigners. By mid-August, the foreign forces had reached the capital, and the empress disguised herself as a peasant woman and, together with the Guangxu emperor, fled. No, no, she did not flee. This is Sishi, after all. She left the city on a tour of inspection, as she put it. The boxers were certainly an impressive group, opposed to foreign oppression and exploitation, but they were also brutal radicals who raped and murdered their own countrymen and women if they believed them to be on the side of the foreigners. After the fall of Beijing and the lifting of the siege of the foreign legations, the eight powers long debated on how to proceed. Now that Qing China was at a new low, it would be easy for the foreign powers to just carve the country up for good. 
But the boxers also made the great powers suspicious of the Chinese people at large. If the Europeans could deal with China through the Chinese Chinese rulers, they would not have to deal with the masses of people that were so troublesome. But with the great powers, but while the great powers were effectively scared out of China by the boxers, they did not leave empty-handed. Not only did the foreign power, uh, forces plunder and steal untold riches on their way out, the great powers also demanded exorbitant reparations for their efforts in suppressing the boxers. The Qing dynasty held on but was further weakened by the whole affair. Cixi introduced some half-hearted reform measures after. The Guangxu Emperor continued introducing others, and then both Cixi and the Guangxu Emperor passed away in 1908, only a day apart. Rumors kept circulating that the Empress felt her own death coming, and since she thought ill of the Guangxu Emperor's reform attempts, she had him poisoned so she could install a better candidate for the Mandate of Heaven. And in fact, archaeologists just recently found that the body of the Guangxu Emperor contained substantially elevated levels of arsenic. Which, again, hell is other people, especially when you're rolling them with other people. Next week, well, not next week, but next session, we'll close the book on the on Imperial China, play some Ryuichi Sakamoto music, uh, and escort the last emperor into exile. Sweet, Ryuichi Sakamoto's going to show up. Uh, the uh, I, I, You know, it's, that's really weird, because I, I, I had no idea why China was suspicious of the West. That's really weird that they would be suspicious of the West, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, what, what what did what did the West ever do wrong to China? <laughs> exactly, Sebastian. Always great hearing your voice, and uh, I'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Yeah, sure. All right, see. You. Bye, Dan. Who are our upcoming guests on this week's shows? We've got Intercept writer Murtaza Hussein will discuss his reporting, including Pakistan confirmed secret diplomatic cable showing U.S. pressure to remove Emran Khan after initially suggesting the cable published by The Intercept was inauthentic. Pakistani officials now claim it doesn't reveal a conspiracy. And uh, Samuel Moyne, author of Liberalism Against Itself, Cold War Intellectuals and the Making of Our Times, will be on Sam is Chancellor Ken Professor of Law and History at Yale University and author of many books on the history of ideas and politics in the 20th century. And we will be talking to Murtaza uh, definitely about what happened with Imran Khan in Pakistan, but he has a breaking story this morning uh, headlined FBI warned Sikhs in the U.S. about death threats after killing of Canadian activists. If you are not aware of what that story is about and how there is a huge uproar in Canada right now and a big divide between uh, the Canadian government and the Indian government, uh, you should check out his writing right now. Again, that story is headlined, FBI warned Sikhs in the United States about death threats after killing of Canadian activists. Also, we're going to have uh, Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. Dan, what's Jeff doing during this week's Moment of Truth? Jeff MCs a cockfight between Weimar Dadaists and the current Magas. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> that does sound fantastic. Uh, nothing like a cockfight, especially on the radio. They're much better on the radio than seeing them on TV. More humane. <laughs> Far more humane, yes. Thanks to Dan Kugler for producing I Am Your Bitter, Blind, Broke, Gaptooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host Chuck Mertz. 
manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell.